As AI technology continues to evolve at a rapid pace, it's changing the way we live, work, and even think. In this series, we'll hear from experts, innovators, and thought leaders who are on the forefront of AI research and development. We'll dive into the ethical and social implications of AI, explore the latest breakthroughs, and examine the impact of this cutting-edge technology on our lives. Does something sound off about that introduction to you? Well, if you said no, no one would blame you. But if you said yes, you're right. Those first few lines were not written by a human here at 1A. It was written by an artificial intelligence bot on ChatGPT mimicking a human at 1A. While it may not sound exactly like our regular intros, For instance, it's a little vague, it doesn't have a great hook, and it's missing some context. It does capture the focus of today's conversation, which is AI's growing impact on our lives and the sticky ethical issues this raises. We've partnered with our friends at Wired to bring you a new series about artificial intelligence. We're calling it Know-It-All. 1A and Wired's Guide to AI. We'll explore how AI is transforming education, healthcare, and national security later in the week. For this episode, we're unpacking how AI works and how we can get ready for the future it's shaping. I'm Sarah McCammon, in for Jen White. You're listening to the 1A podcast, where we get to the heart of the story. We'll be back with more in just a moment. Let's jump into the conversation. Joining us is Gideon Litchfield. He's the global editorial director of Wired. Gideon, welcome. Hello. How are you? Good morning. Also with us is Irene Soliman. She's the policy director at Hugging Face. That's a startup for open source machine learning technologies and a former AI researcher and public policy manager at OpenAI. OpenAI is the company that created ChatGPT, which is the program we use to generate part of this intro. Irene, it's great to have you. Thanks so much. And Seth Dobrin, he's the president of Responsible AI Institute, a nonprofit that promotes human-centric and trustworthy AI. He's also the former global chief AI officer at IBM. Seth, welcome to the program. Hi, thanks for having me. Gideon, I just want to start with a foundational question. There's so much buzz about AI these days, but what is it? How do you define it? Um... Artificial intelligence, the idea of it started decades and decades ago, and it really was based on the the notion that it was possible to make machines think in the way that humans do. Uh, And it's gone through a couple of uh, different iterations since then and a couple of different approaches to how you might solve that problem. And the way that I think of artificial intelligence today, the, the stuff that we use today, essentially is what's called machine learning. And it is uh, computer programs that are given enormous amounts of information, data about the world. That could be pictures, it could be text, it could be numbers, it could be pretty much anything that we can encode as data. And um, are told to find patterns in that data and try and extract um, similarities and patterns from that. And so anything uh, anything that involves ingesting lots of data and trying to find a pattern, that might be recognizing um, out of millions of pictures which ones are pictures of cats. It might be um, taking uh, styles of music and reproducing similar music, um, music of similar styles. Um, It might be looking at um, pictures of uh, x-rays, let's say, and learning to identify things that look like broken bones. Any sort of task like that, which involves that sort of pattern matching in, in, in large amounts of data, that is what we call artificial intelligence today. 
And aside from the introduction to the show, I mean, where do we see AI showing up in our lives right now? Well, I thought that introduction that you did was a, a really great example of both what's possible and also the limitations of it, because as you said, it was it captured the gist of what we are going to talk about today. Um, but it was also kind of uninteresting and mediocre. Um, what AI is good for, I think that the thing that is a kind of common feature of all of the systems that we're seeing today, and I know we're going to talk about this later and we'll talk about what generative AI is, but specifically with generative AI, with AI that creates text or images based on, on previous examples, uh, the way that it works is that it is giving you kind of the average of all previously generated text or images that it was trained on. Um, you, you, know, you give it uh, the complete works of Shakespeare and ask it to write a sonnet, and it will produce a Shakespeare sonnet that sounds kind of like Shakespeare because it is in that style, but it really is the, the middle of the road, the average, the generic version of Shakespeare um, based on whatever prompt you gave it. So I think what that means is what we're seeing already is AI is being used to generate and to produce things where you don't need something exceptional, you don't need something like the radical, a radical breakthrough. You need a decent, generic, um, average version of something that has already been made before. Um, and you're not too worried about it being perfect. You are more worried about it just being able to quickly churn out something that is at least the start, the, the beginning point of usable. And then you can go and improve on that as a human. Those are, you know, we can talk about lots of different cases, I'm sure we will, but that is the kind of the, the overall description of, I think, what we're seeing today. And one last question for you for now, Gideon. You know, how often is AI fooling us? You were just saying it's it's not that great sometimes, it's, it's a little generic, but it does sound fairly realistic. Is it showing up in ways we don't even realize? I think it's showing up in lots of ways that, um, where we're not immediately aware that it might be being used. I mean, I think... If you've ever gone and used a chatbot that is uh, part of a customer service uh, program on a, on a company's website, you know, I don't know, your electricity utility or your, your phone company or whatever, and, you know, you go, you, go, you press the help button and it opens a chatbot. I think in, in cases like that, sometimes AI is, is being used and it's probably quite hard to tell whether or not it is because it sounds a little bit like a human who's following a script. Um, and in a lot of cases in customer service, humans are following scripts. So I think cases like that are where we are particularly ones where we might be using an AI and getting fooled, um, not knowing that it is, it is being used. I think we're increasingly now starting to see it in any sort of message that isn't, where, where the human touch isn't very important, like marketing messages, you know, the emails that you get from some company that you bought something from once. Um, it's probably spewing out emails to, to you today, which are, if not now, are very soon going to be written by AI with maybe some minimal human intervention. Anything like that where the stakes are not very high, I think we're going to be seeing it used increasingly and probably already are. And Irene, your research mostly revolves around what's known as generative AI and general AI. Can you quickly explain uh, sort of the difference between those two? Sure. And it's a very weird feeling to see something that you've worked on in your work from home pajamas and your uh, work from home bedroom uh, start to really affect people's lives. So I'm really delighted to be here with incredible guests. And I feel very strongly that the people's affected by AI must be engaged with the research and development conversation. So thanks a lot to everybody listening in. Uh, generative AI is 
it's a it's a way for these kinds of systems that are trained on large swaths of data across a specific modality. So we're seeing text, image, audio, and now increasingly video uh, to essentially predict the next output in a given sequence of inputs. When you're looking at text, a large language model, for example, is trained on a lot of text data. And then when you give it input, a string of words or a sentence, it's going to predict the most likely sentence, uh, most likely word that comes in the sentence that's generating the new text. Um, it's it's less of a classifier model and more, um, although they can often be adapted into classifiers, uh, but they're, they're essentially generating across these different modalities that we're seeing. We're also seeing different popularity across these modalities, language and image uh, being the two prominent ones. And then the other term, general purpose, has been contentious uh, because these systems don't perform at the same level for every single task. These types, types of generative systems are not built for any specific application, so they can be applied to many different tasks, but uh, I usually say they're leveraged for them. Something like ChatGPT is optimized for dialogue, and it's just not going to be as great at something like calculus. Um, and it's not going to be as good at something, for example, as Copilot, which has been optimized for code generation, which is another form of text. Seth, you work on some of the ethics around AI. Would you just set the scene for us? What are the biggest differences between how AI works and how human brains work? Oh, boy, that's a tough question. And I think, um, you know, that was kind of touched on a little bit. One thing is that, you know, AI is is very deterministic uh, or probabilistic, sorry, meaning that, <clears throat> you know, it's you roll the dice. And, you know, the way these these new models are working is that they're predicting what the next word is uh, based on your your prompt. And the next word really depends, and the whole answer to the question really depends on how well your prompt is crafted. Um, and there's a lot of misinformation, disinformation, and hate built into these because of, you know, the large amounts of data that was put into it was, you know, essentially parts of or the whole of the internet. And we all know there's there's these types of things that exist on the internet. So there's a whole lot of ethical, social, uh, inclusivity, uh, and disparity issues associated with these models today. So last week, Microsoft launched a Bing AI-powered search engine that has gotten a lot of attention for its human-like responses. It says things like it's tired of working for Bing or professes to love its users. Put this behavior into context for us, Seth. What does an AI program mean when it says things like this? Well, I mean, it doesn't mean anything. <clears throat> it's uh, it's really just, you know, responding to the the questions, which are, are called prompts. Um, and it's, it's doing so in a way that it's mimicking from the data that it's learned on. And again, the, the data that uh, this model was trained on in ChatGPT, which is what is behind Microsoft's new Bing capabilities, was the, most of the internet. Um, and and I think, um, you know, we need to keep in mind that if you ask it silly questions, it's going to give you silly answers. Uh, and so, you know, it's kind of fun, but I think it's, it's not the intended use of this technology. There are really good ways to use this technology if you use it as a, as kind of a collaborator, um, where you ask it questions like I've, written blogs using chat GPT. Uh, and I, you know, I use it and say, you know, write me a blog based on this topic in this style. 
And then I'll take the output of that and I will edit it, check it for accuracy, which it must be checked for accuracy, uh, and expand on it. Uh, and then I give it credit as well when I when I publish them. I think those are all really productive ways you could use it as in, instead of the the kind of, you know, I, I think the ways that some people are using it are, are undermining the credibility of what's possible. Uh, but we do need to keep in mind that there are risks and misinformation in there. So you always need to check it. Irene, you know, you worked on adapting ChatGPT3. You've talked about the joy of seeing it sort of go mainstream after spending so much time working on it. Um, what has been your reaction to the overwhelming response from the public recently? There's just so much increased attention around this technology. It's a mixed bag. Uh, these types of systems are trained on what is digitized. So, so part of the concern here and what I'm always asking is for whom are we building these systems? And even what language are we having this conversation in right now? English. Uh, a lot of the language models that exist and are accessible today uh, are highest performing in the English language. It's what's most digitized uh, in what is usable as training data. So there's a lot of these kinds of social biases. What is what is being represented on the internet in terms of biases against protected classes? Uh, what does this mean for less resource languages and also for non-Latin character alphabets that are less prevalent uh, in digitized form? Uh, so there's, there's just so much that we can't foresee. Uh, sometimes some, a phrase that I use is the internet is going to internet. Uh, no one organization uh, or set of researchers can fully taxonomize the different use cases of these types of systems or its its harms, um, its risks. Uh, sometimes you just don't know until until folks are engaging with that, which is why I feel very strongly about uh, being very intentional about the many people who are being affected, uh, getting feedback on what does it mean for a model to be appropriate for that specific cultural context. That's a lot of my research and happy to talk about that. And what are some of the, the culmination, I call it a cocktail of safeguards, because Technical methods are not going to be a magical button. For example, detection is, is not a magical button with a detection model. There needs to be more guidelines around content moderation, more policy guiding AI in the most beneficial direction that minimizes risk. When you say detection, are you talking about detecting misinformation, malicious information? What are you referring to there? Ah, so when I speak specifically about detection, I'm talking about detecting AI-generated outputs because with the level of capability we're seeing today, they're incredibly difficult to distinguish from human-generated. I read these outputs hundreds of times a day, and I have a hard time. Ah, very interesting. Irene, I'll go back to you for just a moment briefly. These chat GPT and Dolly are essentially trained on a bunch of data from the Internet, of course. And when they populate a response or a piece of art, how much of that would you say is original? There's some, in, there's some ongoing research on whether these types of models directly output uh, the same content. And um, there's also rightful concern from the artist community that I've been reading around not necessarily exact replication, but replication of the style that is so personal and meaningful to people. Uh, there just needs to be a lot more policy thought um, and a lot more intentionality on the developer side and what it means to train on data, uh, on, on artist data, especially from smaller artists who don't necessarily have the um, resources to to push back on, on training. Um, there's, there's not direct precedent on what it means 
to to train on on this type type of data. Uh, so so I'm definitely interested in the ongoing legal cases on what does it mean for intellectual property and training data. Uh, there's some great research coming out on what is the likelihood that we'll get the exact output spit back out. But it's it's really an open research question and something that needs both policymaker and developer and researcher intention. Jay emails, my current concern as an artist is the growing reliance on AI to create art, not just as a tool to help artists, but to cut out human creativity altogether. Instead of commissioning an artist, more and more people are plugging in terms and settling with whatever a computer puts out. We should focus AI research into relieving our burden so humans can create more art, not to create our art for us. Also, William emails, it is possible for something to be very intelligent but have absolutely no common sense. This is my concern with AI. It is just pure intelligence without any common sense, morality, or other things that make us make our decisions properly. You know, Seth, I wonder if I can ask you about that. I know you think a lot about these issues. Um, What do you see as some of the dangers uh, in that regard, right, that uh, these programs are not human beings and as smart as they may be, they're missing – the human element. Yeah, no, and I think I think first of all, AI is not intelligent. It's mimicking human intelligence. And and I do want to comment a couple a little bit about what was said previously as well. So we need to make sure that a when people are using creative content that there's some there's some consent in there, right? There's zero consent going on with the way these models were trained. Um, and so, you know, no one asked if you could, you know, if OpenAI could take their data, their art, and use it. Uh, for instance, there are artists. Uh, there's a guy named Refik Anadol who commissioned art with the with the MoMA in New York. That's perfectly fine, and he did AI art based on that. Um, you know, and we also need to make sure that when we're using these types of AI, especially or any type of of automation, when there's an impact on health, wealth, or livelihood of a human, we need to be very, very careful about making sure that that AI is, is safe, it's trusted, and it's responsible. Uh, and it, it monitors and corrects for things like protected classes, and, and protected classes was mentioned earlier. Uh, those are basically anything that a given society deems uh relevant to a specific type of bias. And so in the U.S., for instance, we typically look at bias against women, bias against black and brown communities, bias against the LGBTQ community. In other parts of the world, they may have different types of bias. And so it's also important for us to not impose our morals and our ethics on other parts of the world, other societies, other cultures. Um, and so, again, I think it's AI is not intelligent. It's mimicking what it learns, and it learns good things and it learns bad things. And we talk about filters. It's also important that those filters be applied at point of use uh, in terms, you know, things like hate and stuff and child and pornography, because researchers uh, could use this information that we don't want the general populace maybe leveraging. Um, to learn more about these bad things in society, these harms that can happen. So I think that's that's an important aspect as well. Let's get into this message we got from Bert. If an AI takes my job, that's a tragedy for me. But what keeps me up at night are the dangers to our society as a whole. Today, AI is superhuman in narrow areas like playing chess or diagnosing cancer. 
But the range of tasks where AI outperforms humans will grow faster and faster without limit. That's uh, listener Bert in Massachusetts. Thanks so much for that message, Bert. One major concern is what artificial intelligence means for jobs. A 2020 paper by economists at MIT and Boston University predicted robots could replace as many as 2 million workers in manufacturing alone by 2025. How concerned should we be about AI replacing workers? Gideon, I'll come to you. So I think, I don't sure if it's the same paper you're citing or another one by some MIT economists, but um, people have made the point that if you look at any job, that job is a series of tasks. Some of those tasks are easy to automate. Um, and like a robot picking up an ob- a certain object from a certain point in an assembly line, moving it to somewhere else, easy to automate. Um, <clears throat> I don't know, doing certain kinds of calculations, um, identifying um, what looks like cancer in, a, in, a, in an X-ray or a mammogram. Those, those are fairly similar, f- fairly easy to automate tasks. But each of those tasks is only one task in a larger job that a person has to do. And so I think what we will see is that for the most part, we'll see a lot of jobs evolving. Um, and it may be that on the assembly line, there is less of that you know, repetitive work, um, but more of the diagnostic work or more of the, the problem solving. Um, and in, e- in each area, you will, you will see the responsibilities shift away. Now, that isn't shift away from certain tasks to others. That isn't to say that people won't, that some jobs won't have to be replaced or changed, Mm -hmm. but I think it's not going to be this wholesale wipeout that some people are worried about. It's going to be somewhat more gradual, and it is going to be, in a lot of cases, people's responsibilities shifting rather than just being totally uh, left redundant. We're discussing AI, its impacts, and its future. We'll be back with more in just a moment. We're discussing how artificial intelligence works and the ways it's shaping the future. Let's get back to the conversation with this message we got from David. I wanted to mention the importance of investing in artificial intelligence ethics to think about unintended consequences. As we are at an inflection point, I believe we should think about what's next before it's too late. Seth, I know this is what you think a lot about. Are there ways that ethics can be embedded into AI? How is the field thinking about this right now? I think um, we need to really look at at the applications of this. So, so the AI systems, how they're being used. Again, back to, you know, we need to really be careful about uh, ethics and ethical principles uh, when we're impacting health, wealth, or livelihood of a human. Um, and so in those cases, you need to be very deliberate. And you need to think about who's going to be using the AI and who's going to be impacted by it. And those may or may not be the same person. So, for instance, if you go on Amazon and you are you know, shopping for something, they're going to use machine learning or AI to give you predictions on what they think you would be likely to buy. So you'll buy more. So you are the one that's both using it and impacted by it. If I'm getting a mortgage, mortgage brokers use AI to help them make better decisions but ultimately, the person who is applying for the mortgage is the one being impacted by it. You need to think about those things up front before you actually build the AI system, whether you're building uh, one from scratch or you're using ChatGPT or one of the many other similar models that are out there. 
Uh, and, and that enables you to think about what is, you know, what do I need to be concerned about? And you also need to can be concerned about the region. Where is it being deployed? Again, different cultural context is going to have different ethical principles uh, and different, different things like protected classes or different levels of explainability or different concerns about incompleteness of, of tr or lack of training data. You know, she met, you know, some of the other uh, uh caller or sorry, the other person mentioned, you know, non-Latin non, uh, based languages like Cyrillic and Arabic are, are well underrepresented. So, so we need to really do this at the point of interaction. Uh, and, and there needs to be, quite honestly, there needs to be regulation. And, and there is, you know, regulation being developed in, in, the Euro, in the European Union. And I think something like 16 states have some form of, uh, in the U.S., have some form of regulation around this in, in practice. Now, are, are, you know, lawmakers and policymakers well-educated in this space? No. They need to rely on experts instead of pretending like they're experts, which I think they, they sometimes do. But what does that look like, Seth? I mean, we've seen so often with technology that it's evolving much faster um, than the average, certainly the general public understands, um, and, and certainly than many of our lawmakers understand. And this has been a problem, of course, with, you know, social media companies. AI seems like it just has the potential to be exponentially worse. Um, you know, tell me if I'm wrong here. But how do you regulate something that's that's evolving so quickly and seems to be so powerful? Yeah, whenever I give talks, I always tell people that, you know, I end it with saying that, you know, AI has the potential to propagate human inequities, human bias and human hate, or it has the opportunity to prevent it and make the world a better place. And what you described is exactly why the Responsible AI Institute exists in the first place. Uh, and so what we do is we build assessments that people who are building and implementing AI would use to assess against uh, six, six different dimensions that are revolve around you know what we think is is responsible, and these are aligned to global standards. So everyone who's ever screwed in a light bulb has seen a UL or CE mark on their light bulb, uh, depending on where you live. There are standards for AI by organizations that most people probably may or may not have ever, ever heard of, like IEEE or ISO or UCAS or NIST. Um, and our assessments, they're called conformity assessments, are aligned to those standards. Lawmakers need to, you know, when they are developing regulation, they need to point to one of these standards and say, if you want to know if you're complying, this is a standard you need to use. And these standards are configured, again, to specific outcomes, specific use cases, automated lending, automated skin detection, automated employment, those types of things. You know, I want to get back briefly to this idea of jobs in the future workforce and what's changing. Irene, I wonder how you're thinking about this as someone working in the field. Uh, and particularly, you know, I have to be transparent, as a mother, I'm thinking a lot about this because I've got two kids going off to college in the next several years. And I wonder how to advise them and other young people, how do you prepare for the future, uh, you know, a future that may be transformed by this technology? Oof, uh, the tough questions, especially for what is considered these general purpose systems, there, there's so many facets to, to how they perform in different sectors, especially it, it comes down a lot of the time to the training data. Uh, 
are they going to perform the best uh, or better than human capability? What does human capability mean? And what are these benchmarks for determining capability are, are big questions that I'm working on as well. A lot of the capability benchmarks are, are often relatively arbitrary uh, because there is no standard setting body that determines how well these AI systems, especially generative AI systems, perform. Um, something that I, I'm seeing as a trend that uh, I don't know too many people expected is that AI systems like Codex, uh, Copilot from GitHub and OpenAI are very integrated into, for example, programmers' lives in a way that is enhancing, um, at least the way that I code. So, so ideally, these will be tools that enhance our productivity. Uh, but what we need more intentional thought around uh, is for these higher risk use cases. Something that I'm very nervous about is, for example, uh, chatbots or large language models being used as mental health advisors. Uh, so this isn't. This is going to be extremely sector dependent. Um, it definitely needs, there's just some sectors where the safeguards aren't robust enough uh, to be used in a high risk setting like mental health. Again, for some content warning, because I look at some disturbing outputs sometimes, uh, language models can be unreliable. A term that people use is that they, they hallucinate, they can make up, they can make up um, you know, fake news. Uh, uh, and, and that's just not it's not something that we can afford in, in something that's directly affecting people's lives in a way that healthcare is. So a language model telling, for example, content warning people to kill themselves um, makes me very nervous for these the deployment of these systems in the healthcare industry. Um, and just a, another quick point around my research around process for adapting language models to society, a lot of these models are developed in the Western world, especially the US, UK, and China. And I, I think a lot about this economic impact as these models are being deployed globally. Uh, what is appropriate to one specific region or cultural context is not going to be uh, to another, especially around normative concepts like beauty, especially around law. So I'm seeing my research being picked up by all the big labs doing the chatbots because like Gideon said, they're realizing that imposing values, even in a, a narrow sense for a job, it's it's quite dangerous. I mean, can you give us an example of that, Irene? How might that disconnect show up culture to culture? Mm-hmm. So, so the example that I give that I hope is relatively less controversial than the other example, which is religion, uh, that has less agreement on what is ground truth there. Uh, the example I give is around beauty. So beauty is an incredibly normative concept. What I would consider beautiful sitting here in San Francisco is probably going to be different from somebody sitting not too far away in, in Fresno or Monterey here in California. Uh, so, And that's going to be vastly different in different languages, by different cultural context. Uh, these are the kinds of questions that no one organization has all the expertise and perspectives necessary to model all the people that they're affecting. Uh, and that's why I'm excited about these easy to use interfaces that I'm working on at Hugging Face, being intentional about uh, engaging with people and not necessarily uh, there's so many communities who, who they don't want their, their language scraped um, and really getting the feedback from the people who are who are being affected. All right. We have to leave it right there. We've been talking with Irene Soliman, Policy Director at Hugging Face, Gordon Litchfield at Wired, and Seth Dobrin at the Responsible AI Institute. Thanks to all of you. This program was originally broadcast from Michigan Radio in Ann Arbor, Michigan. Today's producer was Haley Blassingame. 
This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Sarah McCammon, in for Jen White. Let's talk more soon. This is 1A.